Three traits we're going to talk about tonight. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Let me read you. I think it's best to start with the dictionary definition of sovereign. Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Supreme in power, possessing supreme dominion, superior to all others, chief. Now, let me read an introductory statement about God being sovereign. Listen carefully to this. Though sovereignty is not strictly an attribute of God's character, it is the unique position that God occupies in the universe because of the attributes of his character. God is the highest authority in the universe. He answers to no one. He gets permission from no one. He has total freedom and ability to act and to do as he pleases. In his sovereignty, God has an eternal purpose and a divine will for all of his creation. All right, group number one, men, Psalm 115, verse number three. Psalm 115, verse number three. Let's read that. Ready? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Gave the men the easy one on that one. Group number two, ladies, Deuteronomy 4 and verse, I'm sorry, Daniel 4. Faked you out there. Daniel 4, verse number 35. Daniel 4, 35. All right, we ready? Ready, ladies? And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Now, group number three, teenagers, you're in Ephesians chapter three, and you have the longest one. You're going to read verses nine through 11. Ephesians three, verses nine, 10, and 11. Teenagers, ready? And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in Christ, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is sovereign. He is over everything. He answers to no one. He's in control of everything. And while he gives us freedom to choose some things... We are still ultimately answerable, and all of creation is ultimately answerable to him and him alone. Now, of all of the things that Bible believers and Bible students have tried to understand for the last 2,000 years, none has been more difficult to understand 
how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are consistent principles with each other. And I'm not going to try to explain it tonight because I don't have it figured out. I know both are real. But we're not talking about that contrast tonight or that conflict, supposed conflict. With God, it's not a conflict. What we are addressing tonight is the sovereignty of God. Now, God does not move us around like chess pieces. That is not what sovereignty means. What it does mean is that God is the ultimate authority. He has the ultimate say-so in everything. Does he let man choose some things? Yes. Will man face the penalties of his actions? Yes. Does God let man make choices even when it comes to God's purpose and will? Yes. Will man's choices throw God's purpose and will off track? Never. Okay, we talk about, for example, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is all hypothetical, this this example. What if Mary had forfeited her purity? Before she was called upon or even after she was called upon. That's extremely hypothetical and not worth twisting your brain over. I'm just throwing it out as an example, though. What if Mary had done something to forfeit the virginity that was required for her to be the virgin mother of Jesus Christ? Does that mean Jesus could not have been born into the world? Well, whatever else you... Well, let's just put it this way. All things being equal there, Jesus still would have been born and God would have used someone else. Now, those are all big, big ifs, and it's really opening a can of worms that I, that I would not want to even debate with somebody because there's so many ifs there. But I'm using that as, a, as an illustration of Man exercising his free will does not get God's sovereignty, God's purpose, God's will off track. And I will say this, when it comes to the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how they interact, I've always believed that it's a much more powerful God who can allow man to have a free will and still accomplish his sovereign purposes than a God who says, I've got to freeze your will so that I'll be in position for my purposes to be accomplished. Now, if I'm way over your head, I apologize, but I I think there's, there's many of you that I'm not over your head. You're right in sync with what I'm talking about. The bottom line, what I'm talking about here is 
God is in control. He's in control of everything. Now wait, that doesn't mean that the tragedy that happened in your life is God's fault. Because man still has a free will. I'm getting way too philosophical on almost a different topic here. But I don't, I don't want to visit the sovereignty of God without at least addressing, wait a second, man has his choices too. And man makes poor choices. And those poor choices have consequences. God's sovereign purpose will still be accomplished even though that man wrecks his life. All right, but that, that, that's really turning a corner there that we don't have time to hit. But understand, God is sovereign. He is over everything. There is nothing that escapes God's sovereign power and purposes and will. Let me just read a couple of things about that. A.W. Tozer, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. He must be free to do whatever he wills to do anywhere at any time to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. J.M. Pendleton. There are no more truths more plainly revealed in the Bible then that God is sovereign and man is free. The exercise of divine sovereignty does not conflict with human agency. Stephen Charnock. God is sovereign Lord and King and exercises a dominion over the whole world, both heaven and earth. This is so clear that nothing is more spoken of in Scripture. He is frequently called the Lord of hosts because all the troops and armies of spiritual and corporeal, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but corporeal, did I get that, folks that uh, know that word? Um, Let's just say corporal, all right? Um, Creatures are in his hands and at his service. Quite frankly, because I didn't know how to pronounce it, I looked. I even did an audio thing where they pronounce it for you, and then I forgot. I can't remember. So, C-O-R-P-O-R-E-A-L. Charles Hodge. Sovereignty is not a property of the divine nature, but a prerogative arising out of the perfections of the supreme being. If God be a spirit and therefore a person, infinite, eternal, and immutable in his beings and perfections, the creator and preserver of the universe, he is of right, it's absolute sovereign. Now, obviously, there is so much to consider there. There is so much to study and understand. And I committed from the get-go to make this something that just keeps on moving through these, these high points of the, of the doctrines of, of the Bible. But that is just a little bit of a glimpse at the sovereignty of God. If you, if you don't understand anything else about it and how it interacts with the free will that he's given to us, at the end of the day, just know God's in control of everything. He's the supreme authority. And that's the sovereignty of God in a nutshell. How do you put the sovereignty of God in a 10-minute nutshell? But that's just touching on it there. Let's talk about... God is a God of wrath. Now, 
I find this, ex- the, the, the next two, extremely profound what we're going to talk about, the aspects of these. So listen very carefully, if you would, please. Group number one, men, would you turn to Second Chronicles 36? Group number two, ladies, would you turn to Isaiah 13? And teenagers, here's a challenge for you. Nahum 1. There's a book called Nahum? Yeah, there is. Nahum 1. All right, men, 2 Chronicles 36. Ladies, Isaiah 13. Teenagers, Nahum 1. And there's a very powerful and specific concept I want us to get on this idea of God is wrath. We all know what wrath means, and we all know that we're talking about God is wrath. Okay, God gets mad at stuff. Next point. Okay, but there's something extremely powerful I want you to see from this about your God, your Savior, your salvation. Okay? He's a God of wrath. Just as God is a God of goodness, grace, love, and mercy, he is also a God of anger and wrath. These attributes do not conflict with one another. Rather, they work together in complete harmony and are absolutely consistent with God's person and his principles. All right, men, you're in 2 Chronicles 36. Read verse 16 with me. Ready? But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. That's a scary statement, but what we're just really taking from that verse is the wrath of God arose against his own people. All right, Isaiah 13, ladies, Isaiah 13, verse 13. Isaiah 13, 13. Ready? Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And then teenagers, group three, Nahum chapter one and verse six. Ready? Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. We should fear the wrath of God not because we expect that he's going to pour out his wrath on us as trusting him, obeying him, and trusting and believing his remedy for our sin. But we should fear the wrath of God as a motivation to keep trusting him. Okay, notice that his wrath was poured out against his people because they mocked his messengers and despised his word and misused his prophets. So don't fear the wrath of God as if, is this the day that God's going to get really mad and fry me? No. Fear the wrath of God and let it cause you to say, ooh, 
I do not want to mock the messengers of God. I do not want to despise the words of God. I do not want to misuse the prophets of God. And don't, I'm not talking, we're not talking, I'm not talking about me. That's not, that's not the point. In this example of 2 Chronicles 36, because the wrath of God was poured out at his people for doing these things, that should be a motivation for us to say, I don't want to live like that. So don't let the fear of God make you frady scared. Oh no, today, today's going to be the day when he pulls the lightning bolt on me. No, that's not it. God's your father. You're his child. He loves you. You trust him. You strive to obey him. His thoughts towards you are not thoughts of wrath. But let let it motivate us to live as children of God. And let it motivate us to spread the word to the people we love so that they might be children of God and live as children of God. All right. I want you to listen The first one is from John Gill, and it's very good, but I especially, in fact, go to John 3. Would you do that? Turn to John 3. Everyone turn to John 3, and that's where we're going to end this section on the wrath of God. God is a God of wrath. This is, well, I'm going to read John Gill's statement, which is very good, but it's not the main thing. The statement I'm going to read after that, I'm going to beg you to, as much as you can, Focus your attention because I think this is going to cause you to really cherish your salvation. All right, John Gill. This is very good. The wrath of God is the heat of his great anger. It is his anger not only kindled and and incensed, but blown up into a flame. Wow. It is the indignation of his anger, the fury and fierceness of it. And it seems to be no other than his punitive justice and includes his will to punish sinners according to the demerit of their sins in strict justice. I've said this before. Be be careful about praying. Oh, God, I just want justice. No, you don't. We want mercy. We want mercy. But now let me read for you the words of J.M. Pendleton. And and I'm I'm begging you to listen to this. I think you'll find what he says. And J.M. Pendleton, just to to remind you, John Gill was a uh, a Baptist uh, theologian from, I believe, either the 16 or 1700s. I've got to refresh my my, uh, memory on that. But but, uh, I know J.M. Pendleton was a Baptist theologian in uh, the 1800s. I want you to listen to what he says. This is, this is profound. The Bible teaches that there is something in the nature of God to which sin is so offensive, so infinitely hateful, as to excite his holy wrath. Now listen to this. It may be said, too, that sin is the only thing in the universe that has ever excited the wrath of God. That makes me just want to sit and think for about three hours. Sin is the only thing in the universe that has ever excited the wrath of God. That 
moral quality of the divine nature which causes hatred of sin, excites wrath against sin, talking about in in God's nature, and therefore makes necessary an atonement in order that sin may be pardoned. If sin originates wrath in God, it is morally certain that that wrath can never be turned away unless some provision is made for the forgiveness of the sin that originates it. In case you missed that, let me boil it down. He is saying that the only thing in the universe that has ever excited the wrath of God, that which makes God just absolutely breathe fire, the only thing that has ever done that is sin. And he says that if the only thing that exercises or that produces the wrath of God, if the only thing that does that is sin, then it has to be true that there's no way to pacify the wrath of God except there be some provision made for the forgiveness of sin. I hope you see how profound that is. So the wrath of God is only excited by sin. And in order for God's wrath to be put out or to be extinguished, and that's probably a terrible word to use, but... Uh, Maybe we're picturing it to extinguish the wrath of God or satisfy the wrath of God or quiet the wrath of God. The only possibility of that, it's not that God loses his temper and when he calms down, he'd be all right. No. It's sin ignites the wrath of God and the only way to fix that is for some provision to be made for the forgiveness of sin so that the wrath of God can be officially satisfied. Do you have that? Now, read with me John 3, 36. Ready? He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Wow. If your brain just put those pieces of the puzzle together, you know you have something to ponder there this week sometime. Let's go to the last attribute. And this one, this is another one where you go, um, we're going to talk now about God is patient. So, I know what that means, so let me just close my Bible and... Take a little nap until you were finished. Okay, but we're going to look at something. And and by the way, this, uh, to be honest with you, my original list here, I made a master plan several months ago. I had patient first and then the wrath of God. And as I studied these, I said, no, we need the wrath of God first and then patient. And you'll see why, I think. But there's something about God's patience that is different than my patience and your patience. 
and I hope you see it. And we've just a few minutes left here. We'll be finished. Group one, turn to Exodus 34, please, men. Exodus 34. Group two, ladies, Isaiah 13. And group three, teenagers, 2 Peter chapter 3. All righty. God is patient and long-suffering, though his holiness cannot associate with sin, and though his justice demands that the consequences of sin be paid, God's patience waits while man has the opportunity to accept God's invitation to turn from sin and receive God's provision of redemption through Jesus Christ and God's, God waits patiently while the redeemed man grows through the process of sanctification within God's provision of redemption. So yes, God's justice says, punish it. God's holiness says, can't have anything to do with sin. But God's patience says, however, the execution of my justice and the enforcement of my holiness can wait until man has an opportunity to respond. Okay? Group one, men, Exodus 34, verse number six. Exodus 34, verse number six. Ready? And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. All righty. Ladies, group number two, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Ready? And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. 2 Peter 3, 9. Group 3, teenagers. 2 Peter 3, verse number 9. Ready? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right, now, we're, we're, we're just about done. But I want to show you something about God's patience to hopefully give all of us understanding here, all right? First of all, John Gill. God's patience is not to be considered as a quality, an accident, a passion, or an affection in God as in creatures who bear with patience things grievous, distressing, or tortuous to them. But it is the very nature and essence of God which is free from all passion and agitation, suffering, grief, and pain. It springs from his goodness and is as essential to him as his goodness. Now, I know that was tricky to comprehend, so let me, let me put it into my words here. Patience in you or me runs out when we can't take it anymore, right? 
of you know what I'm talking about where something is driving you nuts and finally you say, that's it! I can't take it anymore. I don't have any more patience. All right? So patience is something, it's, 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 it's either an emotion or it's something that keeps our emotions in check, but eventually it expires when we run out of patience. What John Gill is saying here is that is not God's patience. God's patience is the controlled calculated decision to postpone judgment until a set time, a set event, or a set circumstance arrives. Can can you see the distinction, okay? Once again, I'll visit our patients again. Something that, you know, annoys that that I, something was this week was annoying me, and I can't think of what it was. Um, but, but you know how the Bible talks about a continual dripping? And something this week was a continual dripping, and I, don't, I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was driving me nuts. Until finally, I ran out of patience, and I got up. What was it? you remember what it was? Yeah, I'm sure you could give me a list of, of several things. But... Um, <laughs> I got up, and I stopped it. Knock it off. That's our patience. It is a a controlling, it's almost a manipulating of our emotions. That is not God's patience. God's patience is the strength that he has to say, okay, man's sin is, deserves to be judged, and my justice demands that it be judged. But I will wait. In fact, okay, oh, I don't want to get off track here because we could be here a while if I, if I but, but let me just, if you look at the judgments, there's, there's four sets of seven judgments of the book of Revelation. Remember, seals and, uh, and vials and trumpets and what's the other one? Thunders. Four sets of seven judgments. Do you remember there comes a point where the vials of the wrath of God are poured out on the earth. What does that mean? I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that let's say the Lord comes back tonight and all of Revelation is set in motion from the rapture, the tribulation, and so forth. Then that would mean that for the last 6,000 years, according to the Bible timeline, 6,000 years of human history, God's wrath at man's sin and God's justice demanding that sin be dealt with has been suppressed by his patience. Where has that wrath gone? I think it's gone into a storage closet somewhere in heaven. 
And when the time is right, he says, and I, I believe, and I, I didn't recheck it, but I believe from reading it several months ago and, and noticing it, that an angel brings out those vials. God says, you know where we keep my wrath, right? Yeah, all right, go in there, bring it out. His patience has been storing up his wrath. So all the things that demanded the judgment of God for the last 6,000 years, he didn't pour it out. Why? Because there were some people on the earth who were going to choose redemption. And if he poured out his wrath on everybody, they'd be destroyed before they could choose redemption. So if I could borrow this phrase, although I don't think it applies here, for the elect's sake, he puts his wrath in a vial. Now, I don't know about you. I can't put my wrath in a vial. When that guy cuts me off, or that guy, this is the one that just, wow. Uh, You're in the left-hand turn lane, and a guy in front of you, you get the green arrow to turn left, and he turns on his right blinker because now he's gonna, he wants to go. Yes, oh, we were somewhere. A guy went from the right-hand turn lane and moved over two lanes and put his blinker on. It was, it was crazy. Those are the things that test my patience. And to think of at that moment saying, "Hun, would you take my wrath and put it in a vial? <laughs> and I will pour it out later. <laughs> God's patience is his power to say, wow, that deserves my judgment. So let's store that up. God never flies off at the handle. Never. He's never out of control. So understand, God's patience is something different than ours. Our patience is, man of patience, I can't take it anymore. That's never God. God's patience is an official decision. Oh, this is not time for my judgment. So we'll store my judgment up until it is time. For now, we're going to let the work go on so the gospel can go out, so people can get saved, so Christians can grow, so things can happen. Hey, can I say this as a word of comfort? I'm all finished. I have one more. Uh, The last one really doesn't add anything. I want to stay on this and finish with it. You ever look at the events of the world and say, how does God just not destroy it all? Because in the process of destroying it all, hey, we know from John Nelms that there are churches in some of these places where ISIS is, and we know they're killing Christians, a busload of Christians the other day. So while we're saying, why doesn't God just, you know, let a bomb just destroy them all? Because there might be one person in there that those Christians still have to reach. So God's patience says, it's not the time. It's not judgment time yet. That definitely stirs my wrath. What's the only thing in the universe that stirs God's wrath? Sin. We found that in the previous point. 
that definitely stirs my wrath. So here's, here's my wrath. That act, whatever that horrible act was, is worthy of 5,000 units of my wrath. So here, Gabriel, take 5,000 units of my wrath and put it in the storage closet. And when the time is right, we'll bring it out. And when it gets poured out, we don't want to be here. And according to Revelation, if we understand it correctly, and I believe we do, that's when it's going to be poured out. God's patience is a, an on-purpose decision to let things continue, no matter how much of a violation, and at the right time, under the right circumstances, say, okay, now my wrath against sin is poured out, because now... Everybody who's going to be saved is saved. Everybody who's going to be matured is going to be, it has matured. We're ready for this to move. We can move on to the next thing. So bring out my insane rage at sin and go ahead and pour that out. And God never loses control. That's God's patience. And by the way, he's long-suffering to us. And I want to, I want to live so close to him and eschew evil as the bible says and chasten my own sin so that that wrath never has to be applied to me and i believe by the by the cross by the blood of the cross it won't anyway a lot to consider a lot to ponder and i didn't make any of it up it's all based on scripture and i hope you were helped and strengthened tonight let's stand together